Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient comfortable ah. worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole well good thing instacart shoppers are as picky as you are they find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line they are milk expiration date detectives they bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are so let instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the sea in La Paz, Mexico, on board a ship you probably don't know, have never heard of, but some of you historian buffs might recognize it by many of its other 15 names it's had over, get this, 72 years. We are on board the oldest cruise ship operating in the world, the MV Astoria. 
Joining me now, one of our regulars on the show. I, I normally never see him in person because he's traveling almost as much, if not more, than I am because he's a true ship historian. He's a maritime journalist and, and was the first person to literally turn me on to this story four or five years ago, the story of the Stockholm, which became many other ships and is now the MS Astoria. His name, Peter Canego. Welcome aboard. Peter, it's incredible that we're actually here. We've been talking about this for about six years now. Trying to make this happen because there are so many stories associated with this ship, the era that it came into, uh, and, and I want to talk to you about that and then continue on to some other things. But the most amazing thing about this ship, first of all, is that it's still sailing. Yes. Because... We talk about a cat having nine lives. This ship's had about 11. This is like two cats, at least. It really is, because every time it was supposed to be abandoned or broken up, somebody came to the rescue. And every time they came to the rescue, there was a different set of ownership. And every time there was a different set of ownership, there was a different name. I mean, if you start peeling back the paint, it's amazing (laughs) what you come up with here. Yeah, we looked at the bow today, and we could see about three or four different remnants of And we're going to talk about about those names. First of all, it was built, started to be built in 1946, completed in 1948 in Sweden. Yes, at Gothenburg, at the Gotteverken shipyard in Sweden. And it was the pride of the Swedish fleet at that point. She was. She was the first post-war ship built for Sweden, which had always commissioned other shipyards around Europe to build their ships. So this was a big undertaking for them, and it was the largest passenger ship built to date in Sweden. So it was a big deal. And, you know, compared to standards today, when you're seeing 6,000 passenger ships with rock climbing walls and skating rinks and race racetracks but then that it was a big deal she well she was compared to the other liners of the day she was kind of a small fry but for sweden to build its own ship after it was so devastated during the war was a really big deal so you know it's been a long time since sweden was a big deal in the navy issue because i i encourage everybody by the way if you ever go to stockholm go to the wasa the Museum of the Wassa. That's when Sweden had an armada back in the 1500s, and this was the biggest ship ever built at the time. Not just for Sweden, anybody. Yeah. And it was. It had every bell and whistle on board. Everybody came out to watch it be launched with a full complement of, of troops and ammunition and provisions and cargo, and it, it they launched it, and it got about, oh, 300 feet out, <laughs> and a gust of wind came up, and the ship was very top-heavy, it listed, turned over, and sank in the harbor. Wow. That was it. Bye-bye. And that was in the 1500s. Yeah. And guess what? In 1956, interesting story. Hmm. You know where nice, we're going, right? Good year. Yeah, yeah, good year. Well, maybe not for Sweden. But <laughs> in 1956, it was a good year for Sweden because they figured out that the actual chemical content of the water in the Stockholm Harbor was so wonderful pure that the ship had not disintegrated. This wooden ship had not completely turned to nothing. And they also realized that if they were going to raise the ship, which was the intention to do so, the minute they got it to the surface, it would oxidize and disappear. So this is the first story that I've ever seen where they built the museum before they put the ship in it. Hmm. They literally built the museum on top of where the ship was in the water, underneath the water. And they brought in all sorts of humidifiers and, 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 and all sorts of resin, and they lifted this ship intact. Think about this. 400 years later, just about into the museum where it still is today. Every time I go to Stockholm, I visit it because it is an unbelievable example of great preservation. Yeah, engineering marvel, basically. And people just putting their, a lot of different minds to work to do a good thing. So now, segue to another date in 1956, (laughs) July 25th, 1956 to be exact. We're talking about two ships, actually, of the Stockholm and the pride of the Italian fleet, the Andrea Doria, which had been built about eight years earlier. Yeah, Andrea Doria was built in 53. Okay, so so it was about, excuse me, it was only a three-year-old ship. Yeah. And it was on its route, its regular uh, summer route from Genoa to To Manhattan, to the West Side Terminal. Correct. Uh, At that moment, the Stockholm was leaving New York on its route. I think it was headed to Copenhagen. She was going actually to Gothenburg. That was a nine-night crossing she would do Right, but she was stopping in Copenhagen, I know. And then, in order to do this, the routes that they took really took them north. And then around Nantucket, they headed east. Set the story. Yeah, well, the thing is, the there was a recommendation uh, that ships sail the eastbound, or in the case of Stockholm, northeastbound ships, were to sail about nine miles south of the incoming ships. That way there would be two lanes of traffic. But that took a little longer, and a lot of the companies at the time just ignored that. It wasn't a law, and the Stockholm regularly crossed into the incoming 
lanes of traffic. To save time. Exactly. And that's what she did that night. She didn't see the fog uh, that the Andrea Doria was engulfed in. And Andrea Doria was going about 21.8 knots, uh, which was far faster than she should have been going at the time. But the captain wanted to make time to get to New York. Exactly. Because if he gets stalled, then, you know, this whole schedule gets screwed. And another thing that he should have done was fill the tanks. The the fuel tanks were almost empty because the ship had was nearing the end of her voyage. So she was riding very high in the water. And what was recommended you do in the fog is get those tanks filled so that the ship has a lower ballast. Well, he didn't do that also because you have to pump the tanks out and then fill them again Fill them again when the ship gets to New York. Again, that would create delays. So they're always thinking of the big dollar, and he would have gotten in trouble if he did that, probably. And by the so, way, this ship, the Andrea Dora, when I say it was the pride of the Italian fleet, it was movie star quality. Oh, she was magnificent. I mean, we're talking yeah. the wainscoting, the art collection on board. Yeah. She was a ship of state. She was, she was the art floating art gallery, basically. I think, and, and many people do, uh, pre-war, the Normandy was the most beautiful ship ever built. Post-war, even though there were bigger and faster and more famous ships than the Andrea Doria until the collision, the Andrea Doria was also the most beautiful. She and her sister ship, the Colombo. Just on the outside, they were just strikingly beautiful. And on the inside, they were filled with art commissioned by the Italian government at great expense to make people forget about that little World War II thing. And that when you (laughs) stepped on board an Italian ship, you were stepping into Italy. And here was this magnificent country of art and music and great food. You know, when I was a young kid, my dad was a doctor, and he used to make house calls, and he had a number of well-to-do patients who would book not just passage, but round-the-world trips on these ocean liners. And so anytime they would come to New York, which is about once every six months, he would go have to go to the ship to examine them, and he got to take me. So I was there for all those original Bon Voyage parties with the streamers and the, and the noisemakers, and I still have... Two, two silk ribbons, one from the Ile de France. Oh, beautiful. The rescue ship that night. Who knew, right? And the other one from the Andrea Doria. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Now, so not you, from that. Did you go on her? Or did yes, of yeah. course. Yeah. So you, any other As a kid, I was, I was from, from that? Yes, the Franconia. Yeah. Okay. The great. Franconia. Yeah. My father had a patient. This is a great story. I have to share it with you. Mm-hmm. He had a patient named Mr. Bentheim. And Mr. Bentheim in 19... And the only thing I knew about Mr. Bentheim was that he was really wealthy. How did Mr. Bentheim get really wealthy? In 1929, he took every last dime he owned in the middle of the Depression and bought stock in a company called International Business Machines, Hmm. IBM. His dividend income in 1954 was about $350,000 a year in 1954 dollars. He had so much money, he had nothing to do, he just kept on booking round-the-world trips on the Franconia. (laughs) So once every 180 days, he'd be in Manhattan, we'd go see him. And that's what started my stamp collection, because he would always bring me back stamps from every port they went to. It was pretty cool. But that was that's how I got those trips. I got to go on these ships, maybe for only four hours at a time. But sure. I was walking around the hallways. Oh, it was great. Oh, yeah. they were Those parties that they would have on the ships in New York and in, in another harbor. I mean, that was a big event. And people were getting champagne. Right. And they were having streamers when the ship sailed. It was a really fantastic time. It was, it was an event. But now let's get back to the other event. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's 1130 at night on July 25th, 1956. Set the scene. Yeah. Well, Andrea Doria is in the fog going a little bit too fast, and they have a blip on the radar that shows a ship that's coming. But nobody in the bridge, even though the bridge was filled with officers, including Captain Calamai, nobody actually charted the course of that ship. They would just check every now and then, and they'd see this blip and see that it was getting closer, but they weren't determining what speed or any of that. Meanwhile, in the Stockholm, they're not in the fog yet. They're they're on the outer edges of the bank. They see a ship coming. The third officer is in charge on the bridge. The captain's in bed. He would have come up and been on the bridge if the ship were actually in the fog, but he didn't. So the ship is moving. Again, Stockholm is going a bit faster than she should have been going as well. They're misreading each other's signals. They thought the Andrea Dury was much farther away than she was. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, the two ships are encountering each other. At high speed. At high speed. Andrea Doria's captain makes a very last-minute decision to turn to port, so he's turning directly in front of the Stockholm. Stockholm turns to starboard to try and avoid her, and they both collide. And And the bow of the Stockholm goes right in. Yes, and that nice reinforced bow of the Stockholm, which is extra strong, 
crushes two compartments of the Andrea Doria. Immediately, the ship takes on a list. Half the lifeboats become unusable. And unfortunately, the Andrea Doria, when she left uh, Naples with her last passengers, they were supposed to have a boat drill, which they did, but the officers didn't show up. The passengers, the ones that were savvy, went to their boat stations, so they kind of knew what to do. But there was no organization. Nobody ever thought in in a million years that anything could ever happen to the Andrea Doria. So they all took it rather in stride. So when this actually did happen, the passengers are showing up at their boat stations, the ones that knew where to go, and the ones on the port side are unusable because the gravity davits, yeah, they, they couldn't get on the boats, but a lot of them are just sitting there because nobody's telling them, hey, you got to go to the starboard side. And those boats had to be lowered into the water and then brought alongside the ship and people would climb down ropes to get into those boats. But the first few boats ended up leaving with most of the Andrea Doria's kitchen staff and, and other uh, people that worked on the ship. They weren't even getting the passengers. So that was part of the problem there. And it was fortunate that the Doria, they were afraid at any moment she could just heel over and sink. But fortunately, she lasted about 12 hours, and so they were able to get almost everybody off, except for the ones, of course, that were killed in the collision. Now, the picture that is the most haunting, I have two haunting pictures that I remember from this story. One, of course, was what I saw on television, which was later printed, of course, a black and white photograph taken from black and white movie footage of the Andrea Doria 12 hours later rolling over and sinking off the coast of Nantucket. The second photo, which is still haunting me today, is of the ship we're on right now Mm -hmm. as it limped back into New York Harbor with about 120 feet of the bow gone, accordion, missing, mangled. It was like this box, mangled box sailing past the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, truly, accordion, I think, is perfect description because it was just smashed back. Um, But the good thing is, because she had head on, she didn't get her compartments flooded. So she was she was safe once they got all the watertight doors and they stabilized the ship. She was okay. So she had to limp very slowly back to New York, and she took over 500 of the Doria's passengers with her. And one that uh, didn't really quite realize that she ended up on the Stockholm uh, until they woke her up, and there she was, a woman named Linda Morgan. Who yeah, she was asleep in her cabin on the Andrea Doria when the bow of the Stockholm came in. I believed, I think it killed one of her family yeah, members. killed her sister. And then lifted her up. I think and she, I think her legs may have been broken as yeah, well. Th- but, but lifted her up and she woke up on, on, on the Stockholm. Yeah, a, a crew member on the Stockholm heard uh, moaning and, and looked and found this, this teenage girl sitting on the bow. Yeah, I mean, it, that was the miracle story. Right. And you know the story, of course, about her father, the journalist, Morgan, who went down, uh, he actually, he, he knew that she was on the ship and he thought she had died because her name, they had been using her stepfather's last name. Uh, she, her mother remarried and so she took on the stepfather's name and he was asking, is there a Linda Morgan? And they, did, they couldn't find a Linda Morgan among the survivors. He thought she was dead, but he was very professional. He went down when the Ile de France came in with the other survivors. She, was, she wasn't damaged, so she got back to New York much earlier. He did his report very professionally his heart is broken, thinking his daughter has died. And then Stockholm comes in, and he finds out, they, they finally figured out that, hey, she's using her new father's last name. She was alive. So then he went back on and did the whole story and said, by the way, I haven't told you people, but my daughter was on the ship, and I thought she was dead, and now she's alive, and I, this is a miracle to me. And, of course, she is considered the miracle survivor. Exactly. And then... The miracle story continues if you're a ship geek like you are, (laughs) because the Stockholm essentially goes away and it's no longer front page news. It's no longer in in the newspapers. People are no longer talking about it. It doesn't go very far. It goes over to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And there, over a period of three months, at a cost of what seemed astronomical then in 1956 dollars, because it was, at about a million dollars, they made a new bow. Yeah, yeah. They nice. put it back together. Good American steel. This ship is is Swedish, American, and Italian, you know, depending on what part of the so ship you're in. So basically, this ship is yeah. conflicted. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, very well traveled. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. they put the bow back on, and it sails again. But yeah. not as the Stockholm. Well, she goes back into service for another four years yeah. as Stockholm. Yeah, and, and then... And then East German government steps in and buys the ship for the good communist party members. They, to reward them for their loyalty. To reward them, they can take a cruise. On and the name East of that ship? ship? The Volker Freundschaft. Which means? Which means 
directly translated the people's friendship. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I never heard of a great luxury East German cruise ship, but <laughs> no. this was it. You know, she was pretty well equipped, probably better than life ashore in East Germany. Uh, then, you know, she had great facilities for, for a ship of the time. She was air conditioned. She had a swimming pool. She was stabilized. She was very well built. But they had one restriction on the passengers. Yes. They? You couldn't, like if you had a family of five, only four could go. That one family member had to stay back in East Germany to make sure that the other family members were going were to come back. Because if they didn't, that one family member would be severely punished. But at the same time, people were defecting left and right. Yes, they were. When the ship was cruising in western waters, if it was within swimming distance, some people would <laughs> literally jump overboard and swim <laughs> to get asylum. So yeah. people, at one point in the history of the ship, people would do anything to get away from the ship. That's right, yes. <laughs> It's a pleasure and an honor for me to be on this ship. I've been trying to get on this ship for the last four or five years, ever since uh, Peter Canega, who was on the show earlier, told me the story, I should say the stories about this ship and its exploits, its history, its different names, its different owners, uh, its different crises, uh, how it's been rescued time and time again from, you know, a, a, an almost inevitable end at a breakers. Uh, and, and here we are, 72 and a half years later, this ship is still sailing, and it's now sailing in North America in the Sea of Cortez. Joining me now, who has another series of great stories, the captain of this ship, Antonio Marais from Portugal. I said Marais fine because For I had to fine. pronounce the Portuguese, right? <laughs> uh, but you first came on this ship, sir, back in 2004? Correct. So you've been on the ship 16 years. Yes. But when you came on the ship, and, and, and in continuing the story about, you know, it's sort of like saved by the bell. The ship was always saved by the bell and saved by the bell. You were sent to rescue it to get it out of Cuba. Exactly. What happened? The vessel uh, was uh, laid up in Havana, in Cuba. Empty. Empty, because it was at the end of a bankrupt of the festival company. And my owner was interested in the vessel since 1996. So when, he bought it out of bankruptcy and said, exactly. now you got to go get it. Exactly. I was the youngest captain in the company. And so he said, send you. <laughs> and he said, now it's your gift. It's your ship. Take care of it. And so you show up in Havana. You get the ship. You sail it empty, right? Exactly, empty. We prepare the vessel with the minimum operational uh, means. Uh, we bunker the vessel. We take water. We place also some crew members for the voyage with an Italian captain that was under the, because the vessel was to be delivered in Lisbon, but uh, they were afraid to bring the vessel to Lisbon. And uh, me, as a representative of the owner, you I were. went there and to took the vessel really, really like we are opening the vessel to come here to the Sea of Cortes was the same challenge and we took the vessel to Lisbon. And how long did that take you? Uh, take about uh, 16 days because we are testing the engines. You're going slow. Uh, we you were go going slow, slow to test all of the engines to make all our tests. And what was the name of the ship then? Carib. And it didn't stay Carib for very long, did no, it? No, no, no. In the uh, beginning of uh, was February, we changed the name to Athena, the goddess of the um, one uh, goddess of the the goddess of the goddess. In, uh, as a symbol of the Greek mythology. And then it changed names again. To Azores, after we have the bankrupt of the one <laughs> company, another owner went and uh, started the Portugal cruise. And still, again, I start with the vessel in 2013 under the name of Azores. Okay. Now, when you first saw this ship in 2004, what condition was it in? The ship structural was good. But uh, inside the cabins, destroyed because uh, we face a bankrupt. The crew members do not receive the money. They destroy a lot of uh, cabins, mainly on deck one and uh, deck two. And then others appear some mattress, uh, <laughs> some shinaware. A lot of things appear. They looted. Including, they including looted. The, the lifeboats were without batteries. We have to buy batteries in Cuba for to have four lifeboats operational for the trip. And we did it. <laughs> and you made it. Exactly. What's changed in the last 16 years that you've been the captain? Now, we improve a lot the, um, 
the cabins, because the cabins were always, as we used to say, a makeup, curtains, carpets, carpets also were completely destroyed. Uh, some uh, glass for mainly from the cabins because all of them were Murano and steel, uh, but 20% was broken and we have to find one supplier in a glass factory in Portugal that uh, make it very well, very similar, and in, uh, because you are specialists in Portugal also for the glass and it was done mainly like this. But the engines were okay. Engines, perfect. The engines, when we took the vessel, as per the records that we have, not only the records on board, because we went uh, furthermore to the classification societies, the engines only run in that time about 10,000 hours. Which is pretty good. New one, like new one. Here you are 16 years later. How many names later? Four. <laughs> but in total, according to our friend Peter Canego, there's been about 15 <laughs> right. Correct. So, in the plaque in your office, or, or in the wall in your office, and, in, and on the bridge, you have port plaques that are always given to, to ships when they make the first port call. Every single name is different because it's had so many different reincarnations. Exactly. Also, there is a lot of of owners because the vessel was initially built for a Swedish American lines, and after start for by a lot of uh, of owners, including uh, mainly when the vessel traveled, but this with the steam engines between 60 and 85 for the East German. Yep, we, we talked about that crazy stuff. Now, I have to ask you this question. With a ship that's this old, that has this much history, uh, sort of like the same stories that, that we've heard from the Queen Mary, which has been in Long Beach now since 1967, are there ghosts? Yes, we have uh, one. This was so on board, and uh, one, one time by one uh, fire patrol, that come immediately to the staff captain to De ask. Describe the ghost to me. The ghost is a teenager dressed in white, very beautiful, according to the descriptions of the witness. And Was she the witness drinking at the time? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Okay. They were so afraid, so afraid, that the fire patrol asked immediately the, to be... Um, to be dismissed. To be reassigned. To be resigning, resigning completely. We tried to hold him, and but after one month he resigned because he was so scared that uh, asked the resignation. The other one was the chief engineer in the tunnel, in the port side uh, shaft tunnel, that uh, saw very close to the, to the end of the shaft and uh, comes to me also because we are very close friends and told me about again that he saw a beautiful teenager dressed in uh, in white and uh, asked me what i go to do i told him be calm please be cool if she wants something you should ask her face her ask what she wants and we will give we will give that was easy uh, last one was in one cabin in deck four passenger cabin also, one uh, cabin steward saw her. As he knows the, the history of the, the ghost, asked her if she needs something. And after this, she disappeared. And since that, uh, we are talking about uh, 2006, about more or less 2006, 2007, the last time that uh, she appeared in the vessel. <laughs> so she's happy now. I hope so. And <laughs> Captain Antonio Maurice of the Astoria. 16 years on this ship alone. Amazing stuff. On board this vessel are a number of people who are like me. They're, they're ship geeks, they're ship historians, and full of great stories, one of whom is my next guest, Don Lynch, who is basically the historian and the major domo in my book of the, of the Titanic Historical Society. You also wrote the, the, one of the definitive books on the Titanic, but was even better than that, Don, you were the historian on the movie, The yes, Titanic. I was. And yes. if rumor is true, you were also in the movie. I was in the movie. I had a scene in the movie. My second scene got cut. I'm okay with that. But you didn't drop the jewel in at the end of the movie. No, <laughs> I did not. You didn't stand on the bow. No, I am the father of the little boy spinning the top. And usually when I tell people that, they know exactly. If they know the movie, they know exactly who I am. All right. And now I just have to ask a really stupid question. How many times have you seen the movie? I don't know, but I'm probably 
between 15 and 20 at this point. <laughs> yeah. You're the only man that I know that has seen it 15 or 20 times. Yeah. Every woman I know has seen it 15 or 20 Because they didn't look at it the way we look at it. They looked at it as a love story. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, they, they saw the chick flick side of it that kind of <laughs> got it on the map. But let's do some, some parallels if we can. Other than the fact that the Titanic sank. Yes. The Astoria has not. Yes. Uh, and yet it's had so many lives that it might as well have sunk and come back. I yeah. mean, when you think about it. Oh, yeah. It, it, to me, it's unrecognizable today because, of course, it had a complete refit in the 1990s. It doesn't look anything like it did originally, but it's still got the hole, most of it, that was there in 1948. In researching the Titanic, there was so much history and so much mythology, yes. so much urban mythology or mm-hmm. nautical mythology, if you will. Uh, and we're still learning every day more and more about that ship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The research goes on, and there are more and more people now than ever before who researched the Titanic, who saw the movie, fell in love with the subject, and now have become experts in a variety of topics and specializing in certain areas. Um, but, yeah, there are there myths still crop up. There are still new myths occasionally that get created by somebody who maybe wants some attention or to get something in the news. And so, you know, the historians are always kind of fighting those as well. Well, one of the things that came out just a few years ago, I know you'll remember this, is the rivets on the Titanic. And, and there was, a, there was a, a position taken that they were not the right rivets or the steel wasn't the right steel, and they basically were sheared. Well, there was a theory that the rivets were faulty, but they were the standard rivets of the time. And we always point to the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, that was a year older and had a career of decades, and its rivets didn't fail ever. So well, it also didn't hit an iceberg. It didn't hit an iceberg. But, a you small know, minor detail. Well, but if you hit an iceberg, the iceberg will always win. You know, ships are not going to take on an iceberg and come out ahead in that one. Is this, is this scientific proof? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you, you name one where the iceberg sank. <laughs> well, we got the idea of the sinking. Yeah. But all of those myths that are coming out now about, you know, when it happened, how, t- how long it took to sink, mm-hmm. uh, the movie took somewhat advantage of that. Well, we pretty much know when it, at the time of night that it struck the iceberg, and we know probably within a minute of when it sank, and there's pretty much established times of that. But, there, you know, there are many other things that have come up over the years. Um, you know, the Titanic could see lights in the distance, and the question was, what was that ship? And we believe today it was the Californian, but that was disputed for years and years. At the time, they claimed it was the Californian, and then that was disputed and disputed, and today they pretty much accept that it was. And these things have kind of come and gone over the years, and people always will come up with something new. When you think about the entire history of the Titanic and the entire history of this ship, which has had so many lives, Mm -hmm. are there parallels? There are connections. Um, there There are people connections, you might say, between this ship and, you know, of course, am I giving anything away if I say why? <laughs> no, uh, because, ahead. of course, we know this was the Stockholm originally, and the Stockholm was what rammed the Andrea Doria right. in 1956 and sank it. And there were people on the Andrea Doria who had Titanic connections. And so, you know, there, there are kind of parallels. Uh, um, you know, the best families in America do sort of intermarry, and so you will get that, you know, when you've got the first-class people on the Titanic, even the Carpathia, the rescue ship for the Titanic, and then the Andrea Doria, you'll find a lot of family connections between the people who are on board. Now, when you came on the ship for the first time, yes. what, what was the very first thing you wanted to look at? I just wanted to look around. Um, I just I, I wanted to see how old it looked, not realizing that there isn't very much left from 1948. But I hadn't been on a smaller ship since about 1990, and it was just kind of Snob. nice. I know. Well, they're, they're all big now, almost all of them. <laughs> and so it was nice to get on board and just kind of feel what it used to be like when there weren't that many people, when you'd see the same faces every day, that sort of thing. And it's been kind of nice to have that informality that's on board the ship. I'll tell you the first thing I looked at. The rivets. Did you? Well, you can't miss them. Well, no, it's, it is a riveted hull. They're definitely there, yes. And I noticed when we pulled up, because we came aboard by tender, and you can kind of see some sort of rippling in the hull that, you know, the, with the plates, that they're not a perfectly smooth, brand-new ship anymore. They're, they're obviously sound. We're not taking on water or anything. But it, it was just beautiful to see the ship with the light shining off of it and seeing the rivets and the plates and everything, and you could kind of tell where the, um, the, the beams of the ship were inside. It was really fascinating. It was beautiful. When you think about what a, an average lifespan is of a ship, yes. we all know, if we follow this industry, and I know I do, that maybe the useful lifespan of its first owner might be between 15 and 20 years, and then it gets sold to a secondary operator, and then it gets sold to a tertiary operator, maybe, and then it makes, maybe in its 24th or 25th year, it 
usually finds its way either to India or Bangladesh or somewhere where it's broken up. Yeah, the, the, the old days, 20 to 25 years was the norm before you broke up a ship. And today they do seem to get passed around and then very often they'll go to, um, you know, uh, maybe South American countries or something like that. But they do sort of leave the major mass market area at some point. And you're right, eventually they will get broken up. And what's interesting about it is even when they get to that point of getting broken up, they might have had three names. Possibly. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. This one's had 15. Something like that. Yeah, it's been huge. And as I understood it, it was always superstitious in the old days to rename a ship, that it was bad I was luck. told that since I was a boy. Yeah, yeah. And so, and yet here this ship sails on and on and on after name after name after name. But cruise lines are always renaming their ships. I was on the, you know, on an Azamara ship that was it was formerly a, formerly a, a Cunard ship and formerly a, you know, yeah, and you can't keep the name because sometimes names are associated with certain companies. And if you sailed on a Cunard ship, like say you'd sailed on the Coronia, and they sold it to somebody else, you they know, wouldn't let them take it. They wouldn't let them take the name because well, it's like the Rotterdam. Would, yeah, they'll think they're sailing on a Cunard ship again, and that's just not the case. You just don't get that. You don't get to enjoy that. One of the things that I also noticed about the ship from day one, I'm sure you did, is the curves, mm-hmm. the way that the, the actual curve of the hull. And that, I just mentioned the Rotterdam. That reminds me of the Rotterdam, which you can still see now in yes. Rotterdam. Yes. It's now a hotel and a restaurant. I was on its final voyage oh. as the Rotterdam uh-huh. back in, I hate to say it, 1997. Okay. But it didn't stop sailing. It, went, it was sold to somebody else and to somebody else. And then finally ended up, the city brought it back. The city of Rotterdam brought it back because that ship was, and its, its previous ships under the same name. This is like the Rotterdam five or six. Something, yeah. It's been uh, around forever. Yeah. Its previous Rotterdam ships were the ones that brought all the immigrants to America from Rotterdam. Yes. Right yeah. there from the Hotel New York. Uh-huh. They used to get on and, and, and go. So now you can actually go see that ship. And for friends of mine who, who don't have that sense of history, or let me admit this, aren't as old as I am, uh, when they first see that ship, they're taken aback because of the curves. They're not used to seeing that. A modern cruise ship today, with all due respect to the to the ship designers, to me, mm-hmm. looks like a condominium that fell over and floats. Yeah, they, the shear, they call it, where the ship is higher at the bow and the stern than in the center. And in a way, I think my theory is, I'm not a, a shipbuilder, but in the old days, I think that way when the ship would pitch through the water, if you were in the bow, eventually your floor would be level. You know, that's my take on it. You'd also feel it rise and fall a little that's bit. That's how you justify it. Yeah, yeah, that's how I justify it. But I, I agree, they, they all seem very flat and building-like today, and they the old shipping days, even the massive, the major ocean liners like the Queen Mary out in Long Beach, they have shear. Uh, you they can do. stand at one end of the hallway and you'd see it disappear up out of sight in the distance. Uh, it was great. Which was late at night, you can go bowling in the hall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But don't tell anybody. Uh-huh. We're talking to Don Lynch from the Titanic Historical Society. What's the one thing you expected on this ship that you didn't see? I don't know. I, I can't say that I have been disappointed um, because if anything, I, I didn't was, say disappointed. Well, not disappointed, yeah. but I mean, I, when I said I was coming on board, I was kind of hoping to see some remnant of the Stockholm that was still here. And it turns out the ship's bell is on board. They pulled up the bell of the Stockholm from the bottom of the ocean because the bow had fallen off after the collision and it had the ship's bell and it's on display here. And so actually I might've said, well, I was a little disappointed not to see something that said Stockholm, but it's got it. And so I, I think I, I have not been disappointed by anything on board. Yeah, when you see the bell, that kind of brings it full circle. It does, because it's got a dent in it. It really reminds you of, you know, that something did happen. And it, I have to admire them that they recognize the history here. Let's face it, we're in the new year now. We've had a crazy 2019, a year of tremendous disruption in the airline industry. We lost 28 individual airlines, mostly in Europe. That didn't go Chapter 11. We're talking liquidation. We're seeing uh, a a drop in foreign travelers to the United States. We're seeing airfares that remarkably did not go up, uh, even though we lost all that capacity. Of course, we saw the Boeing 737 MAX grounded, and by taking out of service 400 planes that are sitting on the ground, that's 40,000 seats a day that can't be sold. So, so many different things happening. And now, what does that mean for the rest of this coming year? We have another 11 months to go. Joining me now, James Schillinglaw, the editor-in-chief of Insider Travel Report. Lovely to see you back on this show, but of course, on this ship as well. It's been great to be on this ship, Peter. And in fact, you were the one who told me I was going to be on the Astoria because I had no idea what ship was going to be doing this particular 
particular cruise. So you're, you're just, what you're basically admitting to is you'll just go anywhere. Well, you know that <laughs> we, we we both will go anywhere, but that's a but to, to actually be on this ship yeah. and learn about the history of uh, this vessel, which is you know we've all heard of the Andrea Doria and uh, the fact this was actually cruising in East Germany for a while. I, I mean, it's, it's just a, a crazy, crazy story. And I think you, you told me the other day, you already may have already talked about it, that there actually is a passenger on board. Uh, I didn't say this. No, tell her. Well, this is no, there, there's, there's, there's a passenger apparently on board. Uh, we have not yet met her. We need to meet her, uh, whose name is Andrea Doria, which I think And I can, I can absolutely guarantee you that even she did not know the history of this ship when she came on. So I, that's a double win. I'm absolutely sure she didn't. I mean, uh, when you tell someone the Andrea Doria, it's kind of a famous uh, maritime disaster, so most people know that one, but she may not have her maritime history altogether. Uh, it's an amazing. I just think it's a you know, it, it, and it, it's a working ship. It's 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 kind of fun. Uh, this itinerary is pretty amazing. I mean, who else does a concentration on the Sea of Cortez? I mean, this is how great. about nobody. Uh, how about nobody? If you want the Sea of Cortez, you have to take a ferry between La Paz and Mazatlan. That's about it. Well, and I think that's what people did in the past. And in fact, that's one thing I think you'd have to say, a trend for coming here, is that people are looking for new destinations and new cruise destinations. And the cruise lines are going, some of the cruise lines are going out of their way to find new ones that we haven't heard of before. You know, out of the way ports, new ports of call. And then some are revisiting ports of call that, you know, recently haven't been all that popular. You know, we think Istanbul and things like that. The, yeah, but Istanbul's coming back. It is coming back. And the places, you know, and some are going to Egypt and, uh, you know, Egypt is coming back. As Look, we know. two years ago, I was on a, on a celebrity ship and we transited the Suez Canal, an American ship. That was unheard of. Now it's happening a lot. It, it will. And I think a lot of that's going to happen a lot. So you talk about trends. I mean, clearly that's a trend. New destinations are going to be explored. Well, let's let's um, go back and look at some numbers here. Back in the days of the, of the original Love Boat, back in 1978, mm-hmm. the total number of ports where cruise lines called on was less than 200, mm-hmm. way less than 200. Today, it's almost 1,400. Yeah, and I think that number is only going to grow as, as more and more cruisers you know, take to the seas. Well, the other day, not the other day, a couple months ago, I was going from uh, Miami to Los Angeles on a repositioning cruise on Norwegian, on the Joy, and I, I couldn't stay on for the whole cruise because I had to get back and, and you know go on television and do my stuff. We got off in Guatemala. Nobody knew Guatemala had a port, but they do. Well, in fact, if you were you were got on board the other day, and what ship was in port for Cabo San Lucas was Norwegian Joy. I know so that was pretty was, funny. That a, was pretty funny. The full circle, indeed. Yeah. So we see more ports. We've seen more overnight stays. Mm-hmm. Right. They're no longer just coming in at eight in the morning and leaving at five in the afternoon. That's right. People are asking for that. What what I like about about uh, a cruise when I can get it is additional sea days. I mm-hmm. live for that. I don't need to check off a box that I've been to Nassau seven times. I just really would love to get an extra day at sea because when you're on a, a, a day at sea, you think better. You just think better. As long as the weather isn't too rough. That's all. Then, then hey, I, I I've, been through the, really... I've been through the Drake <laughs> Passage last year, so I, I'm, I've, I've paid my dues well, on it. Well, you may be doing that again because here's another trend. Uh, everybody's going to Antarctica this yeah. coming year. There's a We already had a lot last year, and we're going to have even more this year. Uh, um, you know, it's amazing to me how many cruise lines and new cruise lines are going uh, to the, the, the white, you know, the, the great continent, the white continent. But there's an interesting development there because they've now announced an air bridge. An yes. air bridge, that you, mean, means you don't have to go through the Drake Passage. You can actually fly down there. Yeah, Silver Sea just did that. I was at uh, International Luxury Travel Market where they announced that, uh, and it was uh, pretty unique. Uh, you lose about, I think they said four days, but it's 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 you don't have to, you fly down to Chile, and you take a, a flight to a Chilean Air Force base, and they just... I don't know, bus you or I don't know, maybe take in a sled. I don't know over to the <laughs> over to the ship, and uh, you can do the ship, and then you come back, and then you come, you go, you're you're take the flight back. It's a luxury charter, two two luxury charters because that'll be the full complement of the vessel. Yeah. So it's a pretty amazing. I, I think that was uh, that's a first, and I, I will give Silver Sea credit that that's a first in the certainly in the luxury sector. And of course, speaking of the luxury sector. This is going to be the year of the luxury expedition ships. Everybody's got one, right? Everybody's Crystal, got one. Crystal, Silver Sea, Seabor- National Geographic. Seaborn. Seaborn. We'll have next year. Next yeah. year. Uh, so 2021 Seaborn ship comes. Everybody feels they have to have one. In fact, I believe as we speak, uh, Viking is announcing uh, its expedition ship uh, this week, I believe. So everybody's on board for that. Yeah, well, expedition cruising has is, is really become the rage. It's because, you know, people have done done it all. And I guess everybody has a, and it's not just Antarctica. It's 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 the Northwest Passage, it's the Northeast Passage. You were talking about in the Arctic as 
well, and everybody's starting to offer those cruises and as well. And actually, even Northwest Australia, the Russian Far East, it's mm-hmm. it's out there. Let me shift gears in a second, because what we've seen in terms of airfares, we've also seen of airfares stabilizing and going down. Mm-hmm. We've also seen about cruise fares stabilizing and going down. That's true. I mean, that Norwegian cruise line I talked about, that trip from Miami to Los Angeles, which is the Panama Canal crossing, was 17 days, and they were selling cabins for $460. That works out to about $28 a night. Not a bad deal. I think we should go. Right, but Uh, that (laughs) means that even when you take a look at this line, CMV, right, which has the Astoria and many other ships, they do round-the-world itineraries that start at about $100 a night for a round-the-world itinerary that may be 54 days. That's a great deal. Yeah, well, and then there's New Virgin Voyages, which is coming online in, 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 in April. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to get on board that ship in March. Uh, just I literally just got uh, news that they're going to be offering some discounts for initially right away to try to spur more Americans to, to cruise and well, try them out. Well, what you're really seeing in the cruise industry is an excess in capacity right now. Uh, every, yeah. every shipyard is building at 100%. Mm-hmm. If you and I wanted to start a cruise ship line and we wanted to order a new cruise ship, we'd have to wait for five years to get one. Well, I heard we could buy this one soon, so I don't know. No, if we could, I probably would. Well, you, I, want to, you want to go in on it? Maybe absolutely. we can do it. Let's do it. I, absolutely. I mean, look, anything that's got history and character and style, right? Why not? Well, it's also got great steel, too. I saw, so they, you, know, you don't see ships with rivets that much anymore. I know. Big rivets. <laughs> Big rivets. Ships today are scaled, you know, 6,000 passengers, uh, rock climbing walls, skating rinks, motorcycle deals, I mean, roller coasters, I mean, you can't believe it. So you're never at a loss for an entertainment option, if you will. But on a ship like this, it goes back to the old days where you had to be more creative. You had to be more of a dreamer. You had to be more of um, willing to interact with people, have conversations, and even be entertained by them. And yet on this ship, they have all those facilities, even though it's only about 420 passengers. There is a movie theater. There is a, a, a disco. There is a show performance lounge. There are a number of bars. There's a swimming pool, etc., etc. But the cruise director's job on a ship of 6,000 people, he has a staff of about 60. And that's not the case on this ship. The case on this ship is there is a cruise director. His name is Mitch Rudder. Hello, Mitch. Hello, Peter. Thanks for having me. How big is your staff? 16. Bigger than I thought. Yeah. 16 in total. That's a very But that's small. performers as well. Absolutely. That's the band, performers, sound and light technicians, singers, dancers. That's everybody, that's including, not even, including me. Listen, that's not even half the band on some Royal Caribbean ships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Now, I remember back in the, in the 70s and the 80s when I was on a cruise ship, the band knew about four Broadway show tunes. Um, there was always a tribute to, you know, Hello, Dolly. Um, and... Um, and maybe a polka dance every once in a while. What are you doing on this ship? Many different things is the answer right there. We can do Hello Dolly if you'd like to see that, Peter, at some point. Uh, no, let's not go there. Okay. okay. But we, we've got some more modern stuff and some throwbacks as well. We did a Queen show last night called Bohemian Rhapsody. I think we've all seen the did movie. Did you sing We Are the Champions? We certainly did. That was my song, actually, We Are the Champions. I sung that one. <laughs> so you're not just the cruise director. You're the entertainer, too. Absolutely. And a bit more of everything else, too. And I know what I loved about this ship walking around today is that, you know, you'll do bingo or you'll do a trivia contest and every officer on the ship or every everybody's doing something because you all have multiple functions. We certainly do. We certainly do. All right. So now what are you doing, for example, tonight? Tonight, we've got a country deck party. So we're going to sing some beautiful country songs, the likes of Garth Brooks and Kenny Rogers and a few more. I'll be singing as well. And we're hopefully we're we'll going to no one there. to fold them, no one to hold them. I do know the gambler. I do know that one. I'm not sure that one's on the cast tonight. Oh, but if you come down, maybe we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Only if you're going to line dance for us, though. No, I have a career to protect. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't do that. But the thing is, it's a more intimate environment, isn't it? Absolutely. But like you said, only you know, 420 passengers on. It really is intimate. But that creates a great social bubble. Uh, we find it's great. And passengers who've never met before tend to interact with us as well as a crew. And it's a surprise to them they have that many venues on a ship like this. I think so. I think a lot of them don't know what to expect, especially if they have crews on some of the bigger liners. But we try to create entertainment where somebody and everybody can find something that they like during the cruise. I remember on my very first cruise, 
They had a juggler, and the seas were rough. That was one of the most entertaining performances I've ever seen. Unintentionally funny. Ap- hysterical. Yeah. At least they weren't throwing knives. You know. I'm going to look into that. No, I, you don't want to do that. Uh, you've been on the ship for three years. Yeah. What's the stupidest question a passenger has ever asked you? That's a really hard question in itself. Uh, I'll, I, I'll give you. I'll give you a couple that I remember. Yeah. Right. Do the waiters sleep on board? That's we one. get all those. There's one that you might not have heard, and right. this is a, this is what I thought was hilarious. We've got a swimming pool on board, as you mentioned, uh, and sometimes we go through adverse weather, so the ship can rock a, a little bit, and that creates waves in the swimming pool. A one passenger came up to me and said, "Mitch, is there any chance you could turn the wave machine off in the swimming pool?" See, they've been on the bigger ships already. You see, that's Absolutely. it. Well, that, the, well, the one that I heard about the swimming pool was they were going through rough water, and then she said it was, it was a woman's question who said. Is it salt water or fresh water? And they said it's salt water. Oh, that explains the waves. I love it. Yeah, see, it, yeah. That, that one did it too. Absolutely. Or, or in the old days, and this actually predates you, when they used to have something called the Midnight Buffet, the stupidest question of all time was, what, what time, time is the Midnight Buffet? Of course. <laughs> all right, so we have the, the, the stupid pool question, the stupid Midnight Buffet question, and no more jugglers. No more jugglers. You're still doing bingo? Absolutely. We do bingo. It's quite a popular activity, actually, especially on the sea days. Uh, we find that we get quite a few passengers. I'd say usually around 60 passengers participate in bingo. Big pot? It can be, depending on how much they're looking to spend, but it can be sometimes. <laughs> I think the biggest pot we've had was probably over $1,000. Count me in. Mitch Rutter, the cruise director here, who's going to have to write a book because you're doing everything. I'm working on it. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.